It's been an interesting week of study. Sometimes things just flow and they come and you, you go through the motions and you learn and you put the paper together and you're done. And some weeks you really have to dig to get where you end up needing to be. And this has been one of those weeks where it seems like I've dug a lot more than, than I might say I normally would. But there's a lot here. We're going to cover Acts chapter 5, um, the first 11 verses tonight is my intention. Acts 5, starting with verse 1, is where we're going to jump in at. So we've, we've been more or less slow walking through the book of Acts. And it's been going on for some weeks now. And in recent teachings, we have realized that Jesus is building his church just like he said he would. Through the Holy Spirit, through the faithfulness of the apostles and the believers that are with him. And this community is living proof of the spirits indwelling in these people. The believers are living with one another in unity, voluntarily sharing what they have, devoted to prayer, committed to the apostles' teaching. And as we unpack these verses, one question that will cross many of our minds is uh, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, is were they saved? As we go through these verses, think about salvation. What is salvation? And were these people saved? And I use several commentators. When I, when I do my study, uh, I'll read through a portion of verses and I'll think, okay, how much am I going to try and cover? And sometimes it's one verse and sometimes like tonight it's 11. And I go through and I write a verse on, on a page of paper. I write that one verse out, and then I get a second page, and I write that one out, and a third one, and I write that one out, and I end up with 11 pages, some of them with notes front and back, some of them with two notes on one page, depending on the verse, and I cross-reference verses, and I write down there, quote, Acts whatever, or John this, and Proverbs, or whatever the, the book may be. And I go through these commentaries looking for nuggets. You know, I do have an original thought occasionally, but more often than not, it's going to be something I've stolen shamelessly from someone. Um, and then at some point, I start compiling all that together. And it kind of reminds me of writing an essay sometimes. Uh, because you have, things have to flow together for them to make sense. And sometimes... Uh, feel like I do well at that, and sometimes I just jump from one topic to another. But it's an interesting process as you go through it. I'm not sure why I told you all, all that. Anyway, uh, of the multiple commentators that I refer to, a more majority do think that they were saved. I think I've got 12 or 13 commentaries plus some general systematic theology books that I'll refer to, uh, Beakey's. Puritan theology, I don't read all of every one of them every time, but I do read a majority of most of them every time, and just searching for those nuggets. And when I, when I referred through them, there were more than not that felt like Ananias and Sapphira were saved. A minority, a smaller amount, thinks that they were not saved, and there were two or three that really didn't have an opinion one way or other that they voiced. They didn't state they didn't have an opinion, they just didn't cover the topic. 
And I, and I asked myself, okay, what, what would you base your opinion on here? And, and we're not given an answer to this question as we read through there. And quite frankly, I don't think we're given the evidence to really know. The fact that they were hanging with this group of believers is a pretty good evidence that they were saved. MacArthur is in that group. I can see that. But the scriptures don't really tell us that. Oh, there you go. But Spurgeon on the... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, we're not given the answer to this question. I don't feel like there's enough evidence to really even make an educated guess. But what I do know is that lying is a sin. And lying is directly pointed out in these verses as the sin that Ananias and Sapphira have committed. Peter indicts them with this sin. So as we advance through these 11 verses, there are other sins that we could say easily can apply to Ananias and Sapphira. Lying is one. And there are others. So as we go through this, be thinking about were they saved or not. Be thinking about what other sins are there here. Because I'm going to point out a few of them. I'm not going to go through a comprehensive list of this is all there is. But there are some of them that are really worth pointing out. So if you're able, let's please stand for the reading of uh, God's holy and errant word. The standard of our lives. Chapter 5, starting with verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and a great fear came over all who heard. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you paid this much for the land. And she said, Yes, that much. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. May God bless that reading of his word. Father, we thank you for your revelation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance. And as I prayed earlier, Lord, I pray that you will give us the understanding that we need. Open our eyes and our ears to be able to see and hear. Give us clarity, Lord, to know what you would have us to know. 
And I ask that you remove me out of the way and that people hear the teaching. No credit comes to me, Lord. It all comes to you. And I just ask that you have your way in the service. Father, we love you, and we thank you for all that you do. And pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. So in verses 1 and 2, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So these two verses give us a general setting of what's going on here. And any time we see this word, but, used, I have to say that carefully, right? But when you have the word, but, you're getting ready to see a contrast. Last time we were together, it was, we talked about giving, the generosity of the people, giving to one another, providing so that, we're no, that there were no poor among them. And as we close those verses, we talked about a man named Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement. And then the first word in verse 1 says, but. So we had Barnabas, but now we have Ananias and Sapphira. There's a contrast here. A generous man, and then people who may or may not be generous that we're going to compare to. So Barnabas, he sold a field, and he gave all the proceeds from the sale to the apostles. And that money was to be used to take care of the needy within the church. And this week, we're meeting Ananias and Sapphira, whom I'm going to call Barnabas's opposite. So apparently, Ananias and Sapphira had pledged to sell this property, and they were going to give all the proceeds from selling the property to the apostles so the money could be used for the poor. However, Luke tells us that they had devised a plan to only give some of the funds to the, to the apostles and that they were going to pocket a good portion of it for themselves. We do not know how much money was here. We do not know how much they sold the land for, the property for. It doesn't even give us a percentage. We don't know if they turned in 90% and kept 10 or if it was 50-50, or vice versa, maybe they gave 10 and kept 90. I don't know. We're not given that information. But what we do know was the proceeds were to be given to the church. In this verse, we have the words kept back. The Greek word used for this is nosphizo. If you translate this word, it means misappropriated. It can even be used to translate for the word embezzle. The same Greek word is used in the Greek Septuagint in Joshua chapter 7, where Akan retained for private use property that had been dedicated to the Lord. It's the same word. We also find in this verse, with his wife's full knowledge. And this, this phrase highlights a plan that, that they had devised together, an obvious attempt to deceive the apostles and withhold some amount of money for themselves. Their intent is to have a financial cushion outside the will of God. Their intent is to secure for themselves some means 
that they can have but yet still be a part of the membership, a part of the church, a part of this group of believers. And while the rest of the church had placed their entire hope in God, they're still withholding some hope within themselves. They're trying to ride the train but have not completely bought a ticket. They're trying to fit in with the new church but unwilling to truly commit to being one of the members. They want all the benefits, but they're really not willing to deny themselves completely. As we're reading just a few lines, they did not consider their actions to have ramifications that would, have, would come upon them. They'd obviously not weighed out God's visible presence in the new church. They'd seen the signs and wonders worked. They knew that God was with these people. That's why they wanted to be there. They wanted to be a part of this. They may have been among the people that were there when the lame beggar was healed. They may have been the numbers, among the numbers of people that heard the rushing wind on the day of Pentecost. But they came into this group at some point because of what they had seen and heard. They wanted to be a part of this. They may have actually viewed their actions as unethical toward others in, needs, in need. But I have to ask, did they really consider the idea that they might be lying to God? If so, did they really even care at this point? Did they understand that a sin against the bride of Christ was a sin against the groom as well? Now, these are hard verses. These are not verses that you just read through and you automatically understand um, everything that's going on here. So, so stay with me as we go through these. Because we just read a minute ago, these two people die because they didn't give everything to the church. And we just read last week that God loves a cheerful giver. Nowhere were they mandated to sell everything they had and give everything to the church. They weren't even mandated to sell what they had and give half of it to the church. They were given voluntarily. But when they did this, they died instantly. God took them out. These are hard verses in some ways. So stay with me. Verses 3 and 4. Peter said, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? <clears throat> you have not lied to men, but to God. MacArthur states, Ananias, no doubt expecting the accolades of the people for the gift, must have been stunned by Peter's words right here. Can you imagine this? The shock that Ananias would have felt as he went in, and we're looking at it through the worldly lens, right? I'm giving to the church. It's a good sum of money. Yeah, me and Savira are keeping some of it back. And yeah, we may have, we, we did tell them we were going to give it all to the church. And boom. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's a serious indictment. 
What must have went through Ananias' mind at that point right after these questions come from Peter? And there's a series of questions here. The first one being this question concerning why has Satan filled your heart? Now, we all know that Satan is this supernatural being that's opposed to everything God does and tries to interfere in any way he can. And since the beginning of time, basically, Satan has used man's desire of self-recognition, of being prideful, wanting to be praised by others to lead people into sin. It's a common method. We're all subject to that. We all have tendencies. Ananias and Sapphira have fallen into this snare like so many before them. And honor and prestige and influence are attractive to many people. If we look back at chapter 4 and verse 31, the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 5, we find Ananias' heart is filled with inspiration from Satan. The second question is, why has Ananias lied not only to the apostles and apparently to the congregation of the church, not only to them, but to the Holy Spirit? He presented a partial amount of money from selling the property. He did this in such a way to make it seem that he had given all. And Ananias has committed the sin of lying, as Peter has pointed out. And we see in these verses that Peter recognizes the property was in the hands or under the authority of Ananias. And even after it was sold, the money was still under his authority. A partial payment would have been acceptable. It would have been an acceptable contribution. So how could this be wrong? This is the perplexing question of these 11 verses. How is selling something and giving half the money to the church wrong? It's only wrong if you have announced the act you're going to do is I'm going to give you every dime I get out of that. And then somewhere along the way, self gets in the way. And you don't do what you committed to do in helping the needy. I wonder, when I think about this question, if Ananias and Sapphira had gone to the apostles and said, hey, we said we were going to give all this, but we really would like to give, keep part of it back. How would that have been handled? I wonder, when Peter goes through these series of questions... What if Ananias had bowed his head and said, you're right, I've lied, and I confess, and I repent, and I'm sorry? Wouldn't we have expected forgiveness for him at that point? But these things didn't happen. The Holy Spirit has filled the, filled the apostles and the believers so that the truth can be stated. Satan fills the heart with lies, even lies to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one who brings the church together from nothing. He fills the church in more ways than one. He sustains and protects the church. And here we have Satan is always working to divide the church. He's always looking for ways to destroy the church. He's wandering about like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. 
Question three is why he has set aside money for himself. And this just confirms what the liar sin was that Peter has pointed out. He wants it clear to all within hearing distance of what has happened here. He wants it especially clear to Ananias. This is what your sin is. There's a question reminding Ananias that the property is his, and this implies that neither the selling of the property nor the donation of the money from that sale, none of it was directly required from him. But you committed this, and then you deceived. There's a question of was it not in Ananias' control to decide to do what was with the money? Yeah, he made that decision apparently beforehand. He's going to give it all to the apostles. And then there's a deceptive plan that comes in. Let's keep part of it back for ourselves. Every commentator that I studied on this verse agrees that the only reasonable explanation for sin in this event is that a commitment or an oath was made from Ananias. This oath had been given to donate all the proceeds to the new church. And then we have a sixth question. It's much like the first one that refers to how could Ananias allow his heart to devise such a plan? The first question points out Satan's work in swaying the minds of Ananias and Sapphira. The last verse shows Ananias and Sapphira's culpability or responsibility for their decision and the actions that they take in making this plan. More simply put, why didn't, why didn't Ananias just resist Satan? James 4, 7 tells us, Be subject therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, we know that really simplifies that process. Satan can be an evil attacker. He comes knocking on that door every time he thinks that he can get under your collar. Every time that he can turn your attention away from the things that ought to be on. He or one of his minions are there. But the scripture tells us that if we resist the devil, that he will flee from us. So Peter then closes out his questions with a simple but daunting statement. He proclaims Ananias' guilt in lying, not only to men, but to God. Ananias has become greedy. Perhaps because he wanted to see righteousness elevated in the eyes of the congregation, righteousness of him and Sapphira. But he didn't want to give all the money in getting there. Maybe he wanted the public prestige, the honor, the recognition, the praise. The accolades is the word that MacArthur used. There's another sin in that somewhere in there. And Ananias chooses to neglect a commitment that he has made to the church, the bride of Christ. So if you will, I want you to take a look at Proverbs chapter 6. And I'm going to go through three verses here, starting with 16. Proverbs 6, starting with verse 16. And it reads, there are six things which Yahweh hates, even seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, 
Let's pause. Haughty eyes. Prideful. Looking for ways to bring undue grandeur to oneself. Making yourself look better than you actually are. Next. A lying tongue. This is the sin that Peter pointed out to Ananias. Breaking of oaths. Saying one thing, doing another. Telling untruths. The third one is hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's murder. It's killing one without a judicial cause. We next have heart that devises wicked thoughts to plan things opposed to God's will. Scheming for personal gain without concern for others. A heart that devises wicked thoughts. Then we have feet that hasten to run to evil. And and when we think about this, for whatever reason, one turns from God's law and does things of their own desire, even though we know better, even though it's written on our heart. False witness who breathes out lies. This is very similar to the one earlier about lying. But when you think about false witness, this is like lying in such a way that justice is perverted. It's like lying is one thing, sitting on the stand in court, taking an oath and raising your hand, and then bearing false witness. I'll be your alibi, even though I know you're guilty, is another thing. Exodus 23, 6 states, you shall not pervert justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. It's very fitting here, right? And the last point that's brought out here is one who spreads strife strife among brothers. Simply put, this is a troublemaker. This is a gossiper, a slanderer. Anyone who wants to stir up a riff. And we've seen that here before. We've seen that in our very church. And I point out all of these because I feel like the definitions that I've given, Ananias is guilty of six of these seven. The one I'm leaving out is the shedding of innocent blood. That's the only one he's not directly guilty of. I guess it's entirely possible he was guilty of it, right? Doesn't the Bible tell us that if we break one of the commandments, we're guilty of breaking them all? Throughout the Bible, God has shown us that not only does he judge us by our direct actions, but we will be judged by the intentions of our heart. After Christ goes through the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says... You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. If you have hatred in your heart for your brother, that's where murder starts. And you're guilty. And he goes on to talk about other things, guilty of adultery because you lust in your heart. So it's the intention of the heart as well as the action that you do. Murder is not just the act of killing another person. It's true hatred in the heart, particularly of one's brother. 
And I would have to ask myself at this point, is Ananias showing hatred toward the needy in the church here? If not, he's certainly putting himself ahead of them. He's not loving his neighbor as himself. He's not putting his neighbor before him. And I try very hard not to read too much into the scriptures without solid reasoning. But can you see that if Ananias had publicly stated from the very beginning that he was going to give, and let's just say, for example, 50% of the proceeds to the church, he wouldn't be in this mess. And he'd followed through on his commitment. Does that make sense? I think his name is pronounced Kenner, K-E-N-N-E-R, is a commentator that I use. He points out some pretty interesting similarities between Judas Iscariot and Ananias. Satan was in their heart. Right? They conspired for money. Who sinned in connection with a property transaction? It's apparent that Ananias and Sapphira fell into the sin of desiring to be viewed generous, more generous than they actually were. They wanted to be viewed as super righteous, even when their righteousness was as filthy rags. The desire for human praise is more important to them than being faithful to God. Ananias' deception could have destroyed the purity of the new church. Their desire for human fame and recognition was the, the sin of covetousness. You know, I've heard it said a number of times, any time you, you commit one sin, you're actually committing two because first you will covet and then you will do it. And coveting by itself is a sin and then the action of following through is a sin. They lusted for the approval of mankind and to be thought more spiritually connected than many others. This is hypocrisy. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Hypocrisy is kind of an interesting word because this is one of those sins that the people in the lost world will throw in our face, I'm not coming to church, it's full of nothing but hypocrites. And we, we struggle with that when it happens because we know that's true. We're all guilty of that at some point in our life. I've been hypocritical before. Said one thing, lived another way. And the bad thing is that person has too. And we don't take the time to explain to him, yes, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm a forgiven one. What about you? What's your standing? Or come on in, you'll fit right in with the rest of us then, right? So when I, when I say the word hypocrisy, most people simply define this word as somebody that acts like a Christian but lives in a way that makes Satan smile, that kind of thing. And that's really correct. I even went back to the 1828 dictionary from Noah Webster. <clears throat> His definition states, one who feigns to be what he is not, 
one who has the form of godliness without the power, or who assumes an appearance of piety and virtue when he is destitute of true religion. Ultimately, it's a false appearance, a counterfeiting of religious character, deceitful appearance. Matthew chapter 6 spends much time explaining that one of the characteristics of a hypocrite is someone who gives to the poor and then sounds their trumpet publicly, telling everyone what a great thing that they've done. It goes on to talk about prayer. And I know I've spent some time talking about prayer here recently. But the person who gets out in public and has this pre-rehearsed, well-done prayer to bring notoriety to himself, but spends no time in secret, no time alone with God, that that's a hypocrite, putting on airs to be one thing that he's not when he's by himself. The very writer of the book I asked, Luke, records much condemnation of being a hypocrite. Chapter 6, 12, two or three times, 13, chapter 20, chapter 16 in the book of Luke. On and on and on. How many times did Christ look at the Pharisees and say, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. To pretend to give all is an act of lying. It's deception and even worse, it's hypocrisy. Here's another question for you. How did Peter know about this plan of Ananias and Sapphira? How did he know this? And you can think of all the logical reasons in the world. Perhaps he knew the buyer of the property and they informed him. That's a possibility, right? Perhaps they could not keep the secret. And Ananias and Sapphira or one or the other let it slip to someone in the congregation who came and told the apostles I guess that's possible. Maybe Peter was smart enough to know the value of what they sold. There's no way that's everything they got out of that land, that property. That's possible. And maybe, just maybe, it's possible that the same Holy Spirit <clears throat> that enables the bold, clear teaching and the signs and the wonders and the healing of the beggar and the saving of the thousands revealed it to him. I think I like that latter one, don't you? Because we're not clearly told how he knew, the best we can do is speculate through all the possibilities, but my opinion rests with the Holy Spirit. Here's another one for you. How did Peter know that Satan had filled Ananias' heart? How did he know this? You know, maybe he knew it from personal experience. Remember the words, get behind me, Satan? Didn't he deny Christ three times before he came to his senses and realized what he had done? Hadn't he been around Judas Iscariot and maybe he knew exactly what to watch for in such hypocrisy? Or maybe it's the Holy Spirit again, right? I like the latter one here too. Verses 5 and 6, And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. 
And great fear came over all who heard. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. And these verses, as well as verse 10, where Sapphira dies, are hard, people for, are hard verses for people to just understand. And they might say, but God is love. There must be something more than telling a lie involved here, and there is. It is. It's putting yourself before others. It's hypocrisy. It's greed. This is not the only occasion where God has cast his judgment upon people this way, right? Leviticus 10.1, Aaron's sons were struck dead instantly when they offered profane fire to God, fire that had not been requested or blessed. And this was Moses' very own spokesman's sons. Struck them dead right there, right then. No questions asked, and everybody knew why he'd done it. Everybody knew who done it. Second Samuel 6, 7, Azah tried to steady the ark of God that was placed on an ox-drawn cart instead of being carried by the priest. And when he reached up and he touched the ark, God struck him dead right there. All he was trying to do was not let the cart fall. No matter the means that God used to take Ananias' life, he died because he was bringing sin into an infant church that was striving hard to maintain a high level of purity and unity. How could Jesus allow this to happen to his brand new bride? Christ's bride will be pure and stainless. God removes Ananias and Sapphira from the community as a message for all to hear that sin is unacceptable to God and we will not tolerate it in our church. Oh, I hope we can make that stand ourselves. We also know their sin is responsible for their death just based on the timing of it all, the immediacy of it all, and the fact that Sapphira comes in later and the exact same thing happens for the same reasons. And one thing we should understand as we move on through verse 5 is that we should in no way see Peter as casting a curse. He is not acting as Elijah here calling down fire from heaven on the soldiers that come to arrest him. He's not Elisha casting leprosy upon someone. Great fear has come over all that heard this. The instant nature of Ananias' death is what brings fear upon all who hear about the event. They were in awe, gripped by this great fear. No doubt in any of their minds why Ananias died. There's no doubt in anyone's mind who had taken Ananias' life. And let's just be real here. Peter and the other believers are known for working all these signs and wonders already. We've seen them do all these good works. And then the worldly person out here looking in says, God killed that man for giving money to the apostles? Great fear came upon all who heard. Not just the church, but the people in the street. And what's the result of this? What's the result of Ananias' death? Well, we're going to find out next time we get together. We're going to hear that more than ever, 
people were coming into the church more than ever. We've seen thousands in one day joining the church. And more than ever, people are coming into the church. But we'll get there. But this could be one more reason they died. This was an act of divine discipline. They were swept aside for bringing church or sin into the new church. The people fear that this could happen to Ananias, that if it could, surely it could happen to me as well. Another item to consider is the fact that Ananias' body seems to have been ushered out immediately. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but the dead body of someone that was condemned or executed guilty under the law is thought to defile the sanctuary of the temple. And we tend to think that this was happening in Solomon's portico where they did their preaching and teaching and could have been ushered out for that reason. Maybe it was because it was hot, but I won't go down that path with you. So I'm running a little short on time, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in 7 through 11. There's a lot of repetition here. Verse 7 reads, Now there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you were paid this much for the land. And she said, Yes, that much. Tell me whether you were paid this much. It's like the bag is still laying there. It's like the bag, is, is this your bag? Is this all the money you received when you sold the property? Is this it? Yes, that's it. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who, car- who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. You can easily see the repetition I was talking about here. But there are some things that are a little different. Sapphira didn't know where Ananias was when she arrived at the temple. I'm sure she came through the doors of the temple through the gate called Beautiful, expecting the accolades that MacArthur talked about, expecting to be praised and heralded. What a surprise, right? Ananias had been gone three hours. I don't know that she was looking at him for three, looking for him for three hours, but three hours had passed, and this was three hours that Peter could contemplate what had just happened with Ananias. I don't know that Peter knew Ananias was going to die. I don't think he was totally shocked by it, but I don't think he totally expected it. We're not told one way or the other. But when Sapphira comes in, he announces her death to her, just like your husband, they're going to carry you out and they're going to bury you beside of him. So he had three hours to contemplate it, and he thought, well, she's going to come in here looking for him at some point. I'm going to ask her a similar question, and if she answers it incorrectly, because isn't he, isn't he really in a nutshell here when he asked that question? Isn't he giving her an opportunity for repentance? Didn't she have the option there of saying no? 
You know what? That's not all of it. That's really not all of it. But, just like most people who tell a lie, rather than admitting they've told a lie, they're going to double down on it. They're no different than I am. They're no different than most people are. Peter uses a question here that refers to putting the spirit of the Lord to the test. And this is a little different verbiage than was used with Ananias. It's kind of reminiscent of the Israelites in the wilderness putting God to the test through rebellion, through apostasy. And they suffered dire results, right? And the same young men who buried Ananias come in and they carry her away. And they bury her beside her husband. Really interesting, verse 11, this is the first time that this group of people are called the church. If you ever wondered where, where was the church first really in existence? Not necessarily talked about. Christ talked about building his church before this. But when the church is really referred to for the first time as being in existence, it's right here. Verse 11, this is the first time the believers of one heart and one soul have been called the church. The outside world feared the church at this point. They feared the God whom the church served. Well, we don't see that much today, do we? These are difficult verses for people to grasp. I mean, really, in the outside looking in, we see this one sin. It wasn't really hurting anybody. Still contributing a good amount of money to the church. They shouldn't be so greedy. After all, it was their property and the money was sold. And then God takes them out. This is the way our mind works. I get it. Now, call time out and look at this sin event through the lens of the Holy Scripture. Two people allowed Satan to fill them. <clears throat> allowed Satan to use them to attack the purity and the sanctity of the new church. The pure and stainless bride of Christ was under direct attack by Satan himself. This wasn't just breaking one's word for God to do nothing is teaching others that you too can get away with hypocrisy with this church. For God to do nothing simply allows sin to run amok in the new church. And don't you think that God still does this today? Don't you think God still takes people out? I mean, we got all these medical professionals out here say, oh, so-and-so, he died of a heart attack. Oh, he had a stroke. Oh, he had an aneurysm. He had a Whatever. If those medical professionals were there that day, they would look at Ananias and say, well, you know, his heart stopped. He probably had a heart attack. Right? Has anybody in here never heard of that person? And I'm not saying that this applies to every, for instance. But isn't it really odd that person who's never smoked a cigarette in their life, never eat an unhealthy piece of food, 
exercises regularly, not one ounce overweight, not one ounce underweight, and they fall over dead of a heart attack. And then somebody that's been overweight like me for the last 20 years, I'm still here. Amazing. We're appointed today to die and then the judgment. This is an appointment we will not miss. This is an appointment you will not be late to. And this is an appointment you will not show up early for. This is an appointment with God. The sovereign creator. In a nutshell. Man, let me back up here. I've been trying to decide whether to go through this verse or not. 1 John 5.16 is kind of a complicated verse, and I'm definitely not prepared to go into detail here. It reads, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. But there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. I can walk away with this verse a little confused in some ways. And I don't have full clarity on it, but I do have full clarity when it says there is a sin leading to death. <clears throat> I attended a funeral yesterday. <clears throat> a cousin that I grew up with. Drug dependency was a predominant theme of her life. Many of us had pleaded with her, tried to help. She would live homeless. She was beautiful. She was a lovely woman. But Satan had his hooks in her so hard. These drugs were the life that she had to live. And they found her. Sorry. They found her last Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the morning, laying on a picnic table in Kiwanis Park in Johnson City, dead. We don't know why she died. I've got my own opinions. Autopsy results will be back in a few weeks. Even when they come back, we may not really know. But isn't this a sin that leads to death? How many people I know that have stood at that same crossroads I stood at at one point in time. Overdose. Transmitted diseases from sharing needles and there's more than AIDS that does this. There's all kinds of hepatitis and all kinds of things. Organs killed by the use of drugs that drugs attack. And people die. While I'm at the funeral, my sister leans over and he said, hey, did you hear about Jill? Jill's my ex-wife's little sister. And I said, no. So what's going on with Jill? He said, they found her dead Saturday. Apparently she's taken her own life and I'm not going to go into details out of respect for the family. Another one, drug dependency. How many people I've seen fall to this? The sin that leads to death. 
But even with all that, I don't think this is exactly what 1 John is talking about. There are some sins that God will take you out when it happens. We've seen it over and over again. Tough verses. How has sin crept in the church? We talked a little while ago about why doesn't the church today, why isn't it feared by the world? This is the great fear overtook the people in the streets even. The people in the streets don't fear the church today. Why is this? They don't even fear God today. They walk around exclaiming there is no God. Well, let's start out by talking about what we've let creep, creep into our houses. We've got this thing hanging on the wall that Jackie and I just replaced the other day called a television set. And I'm 57 years old. I can remember a day when you turned it on and this show was on. The husband and wife didn't even sleep in the same bed when they had a bedroom scene. One was here and one was over here, sometimes even in different bedrooms. And now we've got a token homosexual in just about every show you go to. We're normalized. Seems like every fifth commercial that comes on on that thing is some sexually related drug, right? If you have AIDS, take this. That way your partner won't get it. I don't know how all that works, but where have we ended up here? Fornification is the main topic in probably 75% of the reality shows that come on TV. Transgenderism is being normalized before our very eyes right now. And if you ask the lost people of the world what they envision when they think of a church, they give you some description of what Joel Osteen's church looks like or some charismatic church that they've seen on TV. They don't explain this church. We failed in our mission. We've got to get it back. We've got to get headed back in the right direction. When one sin enters the sore, the re enters the church, the rest of the sins line up to take their turn, creeping through the door, one after another, and the more they come, the bigger they get, the uglier they get, and the nastier they get. I mean, the next step in all this sexualism that we see going on in the world today is that pedophilia is going to be okay. There aren't many left. Bestiality, maybe? I mean, come on, this is where we are in this advancement of this. And I don't say this with any pleasure. Satan's always looking for a heart to fill. He's always looking for a church to corrupt, people to divide, focuses to, to blur. 
And I'm going to close and say, I ask each of us to consider these things in our lives. These things that are stumbling blocks for ourselves and others. These things that we've allowed to come into our lives. I encourage each of you to think through this earnestly. There are sins I have allowed to be normalized in my life. And now I don't even think about them. I don't necessarily condone them and I certainly don't participate in them. But they're kind of like grass growing. It just happens. Being conformed to the image of Christ requires us to show love for each other and find peace in our salvation. Sometimes being conformed to the image of Christ requires us to be angry but not sin. Sometimes you may have to kick a table over. Sometimes you may have to run someone out of your house. Sometimes it requires sacrifice on our part. Let's always be willing to stand firm in what we believe and not turn a blind eye to those things the world thinks is okay. God has revealed to us what's abominable. We read a few of them earlier. In closing, I'm going to quote G. Campbell Morgan, who stated, I look back with wonder and astonishment and amazement and ever-increasing awe at the atmosphere of the purity of the early church in which a lie could not live, in which judgment was swift, sudden, sure, appalling, awful, direct, and by the hand of God. Let's pray. Holy Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for this church. I thank you personally for these people that choose to attend on Wednesday nights, that they come and they hear someone like me. But I pray that you, you continue to use me to do your will. And I pray that as people walk away, they'll have things to ponder and apply to their lives. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. Father, be with each one as they head back to their homes this evening, evening and ask that you deliver them back safely at our next service. We love you. Once again, thank you. Thank you for all that you do, but thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. All God's children said, amen. <laughs>